How's it going, everybody? These are the worst eight news ever. My name is Greg Knox, and I'm very happy to be joined on the show by, once again, Miroslava Hartmund. Hey, 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 Greg Knox. Hey, how's it going? How have you been since the whole COVID thing started? It's been like over a year since I had you on the show last. Oh, has it really been that long? Yeah, it has, if you can believe it. It's so good to be back. Um, Well, in this time, I have watched hundreds of movies and I am now nursing an addiction to Mark Kermode film reviews. Uh, My watch later playlist on YouTube is literally clogged with hundreds of them. I think I'm trying to to listen to every single Mark Kermode take on every single movie that I've ever seen. So, you know, I've been pretty busy to say the least. Cool, cool. Yeah, Kermode is uh, is pretty awesome. He's uh, one of the first kind of mainstream film reviewers that I kind of got into, and he's had quite a uh, influence on me, shall I say. So, so yeah, definitely, definitely highly recommend it. Are there any reviews that t- tickled your fancy, shall we say? Um, well, there was one that I found really amusing. Um, this is one I was listening to this morning. Um, so he... Um, this is this whole kind of thing about how Mark Kermode has quite a leftist kind of intellectual take on things. And yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. He's always talking about like the moral responsibility of the filmmaker and how like a film does not have like a moral position and stuff like that. Um, and um, at one point, Simon Mayo, his co-presenter on 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 the show, um, says that he can't imagine him touching any newspaper that is not the Guardian. Um, True. And this morning, when reviewing I, Daniel Blake, he actually suggested that Ken Loach's politics were maybe a little bit too left for him. So that tells you something. That's really saying something if your politics are too left for even Mark Kermode. There's um, one of his most famous reviews. I think it's one of the first ones I saw that turned me on to him years ago was his review of Sex and the City 2, where he actually starts seeing the Internationale. Yeah, it was was quite incredible, really. Yeah, that's quite staggering. to hear such a visceral disembowelment of what is essentially, you know, a bubbly, fun, consumerist, glossy (laughs) picture. It's not supposed to have a moral compass, but he just takes it down for being, you know, consumerist tripe. Wow. Is he wrong? (laughs) Uh, Well, you and I both know that you and I have seen that film together in the same room. And the only reason you decided to watch it was because of that review. So yeah, yeah, very true. He's doing consumerism a disservice by making the opposite seem quite so appealing. Mm. And speaking of the opposite, uh, <laughs> which uh, <laughs> yeah brings us on to uh, the film we're going to be talking about on the show today, which is Cargo 200 by Alexei Balabanov. Now, there are certain things that happen in this film which are disturbing. So if you are likely to be upset by discussions of sort of very disturbing content, then, you know, please don't listen to the show. (laughs) Please uh, find something else to listen to. And uh, while this is not a podcast where myself and Miro are going to spend the next hour or so telling you about every scene that happens in the movie, obviously there are going to be spoilers throughout the show. So you have been warned, it is better to watch the film and then come back and listen to the show afterwards. So without further ado, here's myself and Miroslava talking about Cargo 200.
Chicago 200 was released in 2007 as directed by Alexei Balabanov. Now, you might ask yourself, who is Alexei Balabanov? Which is a good question because he's a director that I don't think is that well known in the West. I could be completely wrong, but um, luckily, Miro is here to tell us all about Alexei Balabanov. Uh, Miro, as the uh, expert on Balabanov, um, before we talk about his filmography as such, why don't you tell us a little bit about Balabanov himself? Well, um, Alexei Balabanov is probably the single most significant and well-known and well-loved Russian director uh, since Andrei Tarkovsky. Um, he is someone who is a household name in Russia and the former Soviet republics, certainly in the Russian-speaking world. Um, he has divided critical opinion, but he is beloved of the people. And one of the reasons is one of the reasons for this is because um, through his brother and brother two uh, films, like the Brother Duology, he created the definitive Russian national hero of to, you know of post-Soviet Russia, and that is Danila Bagrov. Um, when I was doing a bit of research uh, for, for this episode, I actually found out um, that they're going to be erecting a statue, like a monument to Danila Bagrov in Moscow. Um, that oh, tells wow. you that tells you everything you need to know about you know the it state does. of Russia today. And I think it's exceptionally ironic because Balabanov was someone who was always quite critical of the establishment, whether that be uh, Putin's regime, whether that be the Soviet regime, or indeed, whether that be the sorry state of affairs of the late uh, Russian Empire. Um, and to see, um, to see Russian authorities essentially co-opt this kind of, you know, critical kind of countercultural aspect of Balabanov and take the hero or the, you know, the main character of the film out of the context of the film and to kind of put him on a pedestal in like a public place, that's pretty scary stuff. Mm. So you mentioned that Balabanov, he's uh, probably the most famous Russian director since Tarkovsky. Now, there have been other Russian directors that have got some repute to Western audiences. I'm thinking of someone like uh, Alexander Sokorov. Um, I can never say the guy's name properly, but the guy who directed The Return and Leviathan. Zvagintsev. Yeah, him. Z-Man. Uh, who's <laughs> the Z-Man. Yeah, <laughs> let's call him that going forward. So the Z-Man, he's actually been uh, nominated for Oscars. And, you know, he's had films win the best film at the London Film Festival, for example. So why... Is Balabanov more popular in Russia than like those two directors, for example? Um, I think the 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 answer is very very simple. Um, Balabanov very consciously made films for the Russian audience, and more specifically, he made films that would primarily be interesting to young people. Um, in a later uh, interview, he actually said that cinema going audiences in Russia are now under 25. I have decided that I'm no longer going to be making films for my own benefit and entertainment. 
I mean, he was kind of ironically nodding to his more art house pictures. So I think probably the, the jewel in his art, art house crown is a freaks and men. And that's something that's kind of, you know, very, uh, you know, received praise um, in the West amongst uh, Western um, critics and, um, and kind of art house audiences. But unlike Sakurov, whom, of course, I respect, and, you know, him being um, a direct student of Tarkovsky and kind of taking that into, you know, the, um, the post-Soviet realm, um, he is someone who very specifically made you know, high-minded art house cinema for Western audiences. Um, Zvagintsev, much less so, but certainly um, he had a much softer uh, style that made his um, version of modern-day Russia a lot more lyrical, um, in some ways a lot more kind of um, mystical, and made it, you know, a lot harder for Western audiences to have a problem with that depiction. What Balabanov does is he offers this meta-documentary take on Russia as it is today, as it was yesterday, and as it was the day before yesterday. And I'm kind of referring to three kind of chief timeframes of his films. One is a kind of mystical present, and that's sort of, I think... Um, epitomized in his final film, Me Too, um, that was released in 2012, where Balabanov literally plays himself or a film director and dies on screen, anticipating his untimely death in 2013. Then there's the Soviet past, and this is where Cargo 200 fits in. Um, it's kind of a very unsentimental, anti-nostalgic take on the horrors of the Soviet period. And of course, there's the von der Siecle, um Russian Empire, and that's where A Freaks and Men happens. And that is where, quote-unquote, Cargo 300 happens, namely Morphia, which was seen as a kind of counterpart to Cargo 200, because it was showing society unraveling at two different endings of two different historical periods or rather one was at the start of the soviet period and one was at the end cool so before we kind of talk about cargo 200 itself for someone who maybe hasn't seen any of balabanov's films which ones would you recommend so give me give us a like three top three films that you would recommend for noobs <laughs> well if you're watching Balabanov, you are already not a noob. You have already crossed over into the realm of authentic Russian cinema. So kudos to you and hats off and stuff. Um, absolutely watch Brother and Brother 2. And Balabanov and many people really view it as part of, you know, a duology. So let's count that as one film. Are we allowed to do that? Yes, we are. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Um, Balabanov made 14 feature films. Uh, Me Too was his final one. Um, I really enjoyed it, re-watching it um, before this. Um, I would say that watch it for two reasons. It's really weird and it's also really short. It's only 80 minutes. It's beautiful. It's dreamlike. It's like a wonderful film to kick back to. Um, definitely watch that. Um, the Freaks and Men, I really love. Um, I really love it. It's, 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 
It's very strange. It's very extreme. In many ways, it is, I think, one of the most um, provocative films that I've ever seen. You know, in the way that it looks at um, the birth of pornography, sexual perversion, um, physical deformity, um, really weird. You know, it's like for the goth slash black metaler in all of us, <laughs> watch her freaks and men. Um, this would be my really weird three because in fact i think all of his films are worth watching but you know if, if you're not wedded to the the the, the russian uh kind of criminal world um context then choose these three um cargo 200 is not for everyone and i think in a way cargo 200 should be a balabana film that you watch having seen at least one or two other films of his because it's not i don't feel like it's the definitive one it's definitely the most notorious one yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I can uh, certainly see why it would be considered notorious. Um, so uh, moving on to Cargo 200 itself, the story of the film I will attempt to do, as opposed to making uh, my guests do it, which is what I normally do. <laughs> so I would say the plot of this film is kind of labyrinthian in a lot of ways. You've got three or four kind of storylines kind of going on all at the same time and for someone who's never seen the film before it can be quite hard to follow um, but I will do my best nonetheless so you have a professor he's called Artem he's a professor of scientific atheism whatever that is <laughs> um, we can go into that in a minute I guess um, so he's visiting his brother um, he has to go back to Leningrad because that is where he works on his way to Leningrad his car breaks down and he ends up at the shack of a bandit called Alexei who is him and his wife and his helper who is Vietnamese and they you know have this philosophical conversation and while that's happening <clears throat> at the same time, uh, so he's, so the professor's niece's friend uh, called Valera, who is at a disco, he meets a girl called Angelica and they kind of hook up and he, you know, doesn't want the night to end and he goes to get booze from this shack from this bandit alexi so the professor has left at this point his car's been fixed and while he's there there's a strange man who is outside the shack kind of looking very ominous and very very creepy and with good reason as we find out as the film goes on now what i've kind of just described takes about the first sort of t 25 minutes of the film i would say and it can be so sort of, you, you you know, for someone who, like me, hadn't seen the film before, I was thinking, okay, I kind of know what's going on in the film because I'd seen kind of the vague kind of, okay, this is what happens. I'm like, all right, what's going on? But it is worth sticking with, I would definitely say. Um, so, yeah, you mentioned that Balabanov's films are sort of, they're, they're quite literary. And I would say this feels that way as well. He, he has been accused of plagiarizing Faulkner's Sanctuary because at the very beginning of the film, there is an intertitle that says, this film is based on true events. And that's something that really ruffled the feathers of Russian people. Um, a lot of kind of prominent uh, public intellectuals and politicians and, you know, champions of public morality saying, you know, 
this this is not you know this never happened he depicts a country that never existed he's showing all of this perversion and corruption that never was and um actually Balabanov said that the film was based on his own experience of working, uh, both serving in the army between 1981 and 1983. Um, he was in Afghanistan. He was also um, as a military translator and um, part, a part of the cargo aviation. He, he actually went all over the world, or at least the parts of the world that the Soviet Union sold arms to. So he did see quite a lot of the world and the impact that the Soviets had in those exotic parts of the world. And that's where the term Cargo 200 comes from as well. We should probably explain. Absolutely. Um, Cargo 200, Gruz uh, 200, uh, was the code for zinc coffins which contained the bodies of killed Soviet soldiers. Um, there were about 15,000 Soviet soldiers um, not just Russians, but Ukrainians and really representatives of all the 15 Soviet republics who died um, in Afghanistan during the Soviet war in Afghanistan that lasted um, 10 years. Um, so Cargo 200 was, you know, the code name for, for the bodies of the soldiers coming, being taken back from the battlefields and back into the Soviet Union. So this taking place in 1984 is very important as we've kind of established. So from what I've read, Balabanov, uh, one of the reasons it's quite provocative from what I understand is it's basically taking uh, a look from the past to say that uh, Russia today is not exceptional, or am I getting this wrong? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I think Balabanov's work as a whole is is best viewed as a kind of um, single filmic text which takes place in neither the present nor the past it's this kind of all-time Russia I mean he, he does talk about this national pathology that seems to permeate um, all the different epochs um, so he could be showing you a film about um, late 19th century St. Petersburg and the kind of pornographic underground. And really what he's talking about is the flourishing pornographic um, industry that uses a lot of, you know, Slavic women in the 90s, essentially snuff films even. You know, I mean, the Cargo 200 was pretty much accused of being a snuff film when it came out. But in Brother 2... Very interesting thing to mention on this show, <laughs> considering some of the films <laughs> I've talked about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this is this is worst date movie territory, but probably worst dinner conversation territory too. So you know, just throwing it out there. Um, in Brother Two, um, one of the things that the American gangster is doing is he's buying video cassettes of real rapes and murders of of Russian women and selling them at a great profit in the US. Um, so actually, Balabanov is, 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 is very much interested in kind of messing with our expectations and kind of not allowing us to be cozy and be like, 
oh, wasn't that a grim time? You know, wasn't pre-revolutionary Russia a grim time? Oh, wasn't the Soviet <laughs> Union a grim time? Oh, weren't the 90s a grim time? No, he's like, guys, these problems are still there and we need to sort them out. But he does it in such a way that's not moralistic. And in a way, he has been accused over the years of being morally irresponsible, you know, because he's made such compelling characters who are, in fact, criminals. Um, I mean, Danila Bagrov, I mean, he kills, I mean, I, I haven't ever counted, you know, but he's got quite a body count and he just does this <laughs> with this child-faced um, confidence. Baby-faced assassin. Yeah, he very much is. And, you know, the idea is, I guess, you know, in in the in the films, his it's kind of unclear, you know, his justification is like, oh, I'm killing bad people or, oh, I'm doing this for the sake of my friends to protect my own, you know, but it's, it's very morally ambiguous. So actually, I think over over time, Balabanov becomes a lot more aware of this moral responsibility that he has as a film director. And Me Too is very in, unequivocal um, in its kind of um, um, in judging, you know, in, in judging um, murder, you know, and, 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 and sin in a way, you know. Um, it's got a much firmer moral compass, let's put it that way. Um, Cargo 200... Um, is perhaps people's least favorite film because it did not present a single lovable character. Everyone in the film is just, you know, either a full-on pervert or they're very passive and cowardly or they're just in some way, you know, really uh, difficult to relate to. Like, for instance, Valera, whom you mentioned, the friend who, um, um, you know, uh, basically, Cargo 200, I think, at the heart of it is is a film about the worst date ever in a movie. <laughs> you know? right. It's very because apropos. the central, you know, I mean, I think, I think out of all the different narratives, perhaps the central one is the one of Angelica, who is the daughter of a local Communist Party boss who is abducted by a police captain who abuses his power to... Um, <laughs> can I... Is spoilers? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're, we're full spoiler territory. Absolutely. Well, he abducts her, chains her to a bed in this horrible, grotty apartment that he shares with his alcoholic schizophrenic mother who is just i mean she this is like the territory of russian folklore she's like the she's like this this forest witch you know this like baba yaga she's like full-on <laughs> mental um and ugly you know just the sheer ugliness she's glued to the tv and we see like some of the most surreal um footage of like actual soviet tv um, you, you've commented, I think, when we talked about this in the past on, um, on like how catchy and weird the Soviet pop music is uh, in the yes. film, which is kind of contrasted sharply with this kind of industrial hellish landscape. So the police captain, who is played by Alexei Polyan, who is a kind of semi-professional actor, um, he, he passed away at the age of just 44 um, and that's kind of added to the whole, you know, Balabanov sort of halo of tragedy that kind of rings, you know, him and everyone around him. 
And mm -hmm. basically what he does is he abuses his authority as a police captain to, um, to steal the coffin that contains the body of Angelica's fiance, who was killed in Afghanistan. And he brings the like he, he brings the coffin into this apartment with the help of two of his subordinates. Then he takes the body of this dead Soviet soldier, who was the fiance of this abducted girl. He throws the body onto the bed. We should mention that actually before he even abducts her, he rapes her with a vodka bottle. The reason why that happens is because he's impotent. So he mm -hmm. has to use objects or people in order to perform sexual violence on Angelica. And that, I think, was for many people one of the most shocking scenes. And, and you know, and the critics said people were in uproar. They were like, how can you show this on the screen? How can you fabricate something as crazy as that? Balabanov, in fact, said that this actually happened to someone that was close to him to when he was quite young this 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 uh, a girlfriend of his confided in him that that had actually happened to her in the soviet provinces in the late 80s another interesting detail is that in Faulkner's sanctuary um the the main um the main character of Faulkner's sanctuary um and her name is is temple temple something. Yeah, which is quite cool as well, because Temple, that's kind of got a kind of Christian... Uh, Temple Drake, yeah. Temple Drake. Um, she is raped with a corn cob, and that's kind of a very American South thing. And, uh, you know, and I guess the vodka bottle is a very kind of Russian thing. And yeah. apparently Balabanov um, sort of did see this as a kind of... Um, allegorical film, but he kept his mouth very much closed and just, he just like unleashed the film onto the good people of Russia and just, you know, <laughs> watched it all burn. But there you he, go, everyone. But he revealed to um, to the, to the act actress who plays Angelica, um, Agnia Kuznetsova, that she in fact had played Russia. So symbolically, this scared girl who has been abducted, you know, in and 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 tortured sexually and emotionally in various ways. Um, at one point he he brings in a an alcoholic criminal um, that he kind of almost kind of unlawfully arrests um, to rape her on his behalf. Then he shoots him in the head leaves his corpse to rot alongside her fiancés, you know, in one of the most disturbing scenes, I think, ever, ever. I think Balabanov really did push the boat out on this one. Um, he created... Yeah, I mean, the, the scene, you know, Angelica handcuffed to the bed with two rotting corpses beside her. I mean, Greg, you've seen a lot of really fucked up stuff. How bad is this? <laughs> Oh, um, all I would say is in terms of the uh, what you're talking about makes the film sound absolutely horrible. And if you write it down on paper, yes, it is horrible. But one of the things I would say the film does differently to a lot of films that I've seen with horrific content. And believe me, I've seen quite a few, everybody, as you can probably tell if you've listened to this show. Um, it's not gratuitous. 
I would say. So when we're talking about, you know, a young woman being raped by a bottle, you don't see that. You talk about um, her being effectively raped by this, you know, drunk man, this criminal. You, I mean, you sort of see it, but it's not like you see anything kind of gratuitous in that in and of itself as well so you don't see this genitals you don't see close-ups you don't know yeah no this isn't like some of the films that i've seen let's put it that way where you kind of have to do that because the film doesn't particularly have a lot of artistic integrity should we say whereas this film does um one of the things i wanted to pick up on though and you mentioned the film you, you mentioned that Balabanov, he told the actress who was playing Angelica that she's playing Russia. Well, after, so after the film had been released, he sort of said to her, good job. Oh, and by the way, you were playing Russia. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Yeah. So he told her that. And in a couple of reviews that I've seen of the film, it's been compared in a way to a Serbian film. Now, not necessarily because of the content, although in both films it's disturbing. I would say in one film the disturbing content is way too gratuitous, but we'll we'll, we'll leave it. It should be pretty obvious which one I'm talking about there. Um, But that film, a Serbian film, basically in short, because this is a spoiler for everyone, I am planning to talk about a Serbian film on another episode in this series, so I don't want to go too in-depth. But essentially, the point I'm trying to make is that the director of a Serbian film basically said that the film is meant to be an allegory for Serbian life post the Baltic War, essentially. No, not the Baltic War, the Balkan War. Get it right. That's the one. So, yeah, that's the one. Yeah, exactly. So how terrible life in the Balkans was, essentially. And it's fine to say that, but if you look at what's in that film, you go, okay, I don't really think you're being completely uh, non-disingenuous with this. Um, So anyway, with this, I actually do kind of think that that's the case, or what are your thoughts on that? Um, You know, I think it's the elephant in the room, isn't it? It's not possible to talk about Cargo 200 without talking about what is the central allegorical slash horrific scene in the film you know (laughs) extra r's everything yeah 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 for sure extra r's extra o's um uh it's it's sort of it very much is the culmination of the horror what is horrific about it is the meta documentary quality you know of the way that it's shot it's it's very deadpan, it's very um, matter-of-fact, it's very claustrophobic, you know, the way, you know, the camera does not move. It's very, you know, it's, it's, it's very contained, it's very brooding. And then there's all this, like, injustice, madness unfolding around it as well. You know, I think um, the crushing passivity of many of the, of the characters kind of really add to the to the dramatic tension. And and another thing that you know we sort of touched on is the the industrial landscape, you know, just the um the beauty but also the horror, the dehumanizing man-made horror of this landscape which reminds us of Tarkovsky but it's impossible to confuse this. You know, this is Balabanov through and through. 
Um, and this is the Soviet provinces rather than the Soviet cities or the countryside, you know, which feature in, in many of his other films. I mean, the city to him is, a for, for in, 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 in Balabanov's world, you know, the city is, is very much, it's like in Sex and the City, you know, when they say New York is the fifth main character in Balabanov's <laughs> work, um, the city is very much, you know, a, another character. Um, I can't believe you managed to compare this to <laughs> Sex and the City. Somehow, like, somehow, you know, I hmm. I think the the reason we did is because of um, Mark Kermode. It's his fault. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah. Gosh, what was the question? I, I'm just like finding myself just being like, whew, <laughs> What was that? Um, this is one of the few films we've reviewed where we kind of didn't re-watch it just before recording. We were like, nah, we're good. We've seen it. We know it. <laughs> nah, it's, it's that. But I think with a film like this, uh, one of the things that I really enjoyed about it is that you don't have, like, let's say, one main character or two main characters and then a series of kind of less important side characters who are only there just to further the story. I would say you have about seven or eight kind of very important characters um, for the film to, to really happen. And what I would say um, about the characters is what they do, they don't do in a manner just to sort of advance the plot. So in a lot of kind of bad films, what tends to happen is, you know, whoever wrote the film, you know, screenwriter, director, whoever, they will go, oh, okay, right, so I need this to happen in my film. How do I get the characters to get to that point? So characters will end up doing a bunch of really stupid things that don't make any sense. And a lot of the time are just inconsistent to their characters in order to get to that point. Whereas in this, it's cause and effect, Mm, absolutely so a character will do something and in uh because of that you know a certain other thing will happen and because of that certain other things will happen so the big arc throughout the film is that of the professor a professor of scientific atheism who by the end of the, the film his uh opinions have very much kind of changed and maybe he wants to convert as well yeah it's very good that you should mention this because in many ways, um, the other pivotal scene of the film <laughs> is a great big theological discussion Yeah. Um, between the distillery owner, Alexei, and Artyom, the, the, the professor of um, scientific atheism, where um, well, Alexei, who is clearly a believer, you know, he believes in God, he has a very strong faith, um, he went to... To prison, he went away for, for something like ten years for uh, for accidentally killing a guy when he was younger in a fight. Essentially, you know, ma manslaughter, I guess, you know. But but he yeah. he owned up to it because his conscience told him to do so, and because he didn't want anyone else to be falsely accused of it. Um, and then what happens is he is again, uh, uh, even though he went away for doing something that he did do, even though he could have gotten away with it. The second time he goes into the Soviet justice system is when he is falsely accused of shooting his employee, the Vietnamese laborer, 
who lives on the farm, even though it was the police captain who shot him. And what happened was mm. the Vietnamese laborer was trying to protect Angelica. He, he asks the police captain not to hurt her and kind of attempts to, you know, intercept him as he's making his way towards her. And he gets shot. And then Alexei gets blamed for it. And the reason why he doesn't speak up and, you know, exonerate himself is because they have some kind of some kind of shady pact, pact from, yeah. from, from back in the days, you know. So it's all these like, you know, codes of honor and trust and loyalty, but also it's also messed up and yeah, it's 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 difficult. But Alexei challenges the professor of scientific atheism by saying, So, <laughs> is there a God? And then he, he he basically, you know, delivers this this scathing, absolutely scathing um kind of um um um, um, uh, overview of, of 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 Nietzsche and Campanella and kind of like orthodox theology and um, and and you know in a way if you think about it even though Alexei is executed for a crime that he didn't commit it's almost like he as a believer accepts a kind of collective culpability for all you know the 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 ills of society like he didn't do this one particular thing that he's accused of but yet he is complicit he's still part of this 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 world um it's like karma i guess um in what sense well in that even though he didn't commit this crime he committed other crimes so he, he would have gone down eventually yeah yeah uh, yeah absolutely and um and and also um it's a nod to dostoevsky's uh, the brothers karamazov because in in the brothers karamazov what happens is the um the corrupt um immoral father is uh is killed by his illegitimate son but um another like another man goes down for the crime but there is this idea of kind of collective culpability you know the society was complicit when they allowed the father to carry on with his wrongdoings in plain sight and now they are complicit because they know the truth but no one will speak up and you know and the accused can't for for various reasons so you know that's very Dostoevsky Absolutely. And in many ways, I think Balabanov is very much the, um, the Dostoevsky of the screen. You know, Dostoevsky famously read the crime pages of the weekly newspaper. And that's where he got, you know, inspiration for, for, for really um, most, of his, most of his work. In the same way, Balabanov kind of um, draws on, um, on, on real, you know, on literature as much as on kind of real, you know, like on stories and also on, on, on the real situation, you know, the 1990s in the post-Soviet world famously were a time of bespredil or lawlessness, you know, anything went, I mean, look at me. I saw the film Brother when I was aged nine. That was probably <laughs> around the same time I saw Pulp Fiction for the first time. There's just no thing as certification. You know, we did not, as uh, post-Soviet children, know what is this PG, <laughs> 13, 18. You know, we could watch anything. Um, my sister and I often recall there used to be this... Um, this TV show, literally, it was like every single evening, 
There was a TV show in Ukraine called Situatse or The Situation, which was like basically like documentary footage of all the horrible things that happened during the day, filmed like really candidly with like uh, the cameras. So you like film crews followed like police around and filmed these, just all these horrible things. And it was like, it was full on, like it wasn't snuff because you didn't see people actually killing other people on camera, but it was pretty much everything that happened after the perpetrator had left. I mean, at one point I remember seeing some, that was, must've been about eight or nine, but one of them, and, and, and they showed this after X-Files as well. So I would watch the X-Files. <laughs> so I would watch the, I think they showed the news and then um, they showed the, the X-Files and then they showed this. And so I would watch the X-Files with my, with my uncle sometimes, get really scared. But then there was Situatze. And then once there was this horrible one about this baby that got found like this dead, like this, this little baby's body got found in, in some bins and it had been mutilated and they actually showed it. And this was like real, this was like insanity, you know, like nowadays that doesn't happen, but you know, I mean, that's good to know for our sins we have the internet so it's still it's, it's all still accessible but at least it's not coming at you from the tv set um but this this is an example of how you know in the soviet union you had extreme censorship and you had um generally you know people you know you had a tv if you were reasonably well off but you know anything like vcrs or kind of recording equipment or anything like that it was just not available you know um but, you know, so you had this very limited amount of information or uh, films, you know. And then suddenly, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, anything goes, you know. But then Balabanov is saying, all this shit still happened. We just didn't see it. We didn't hear about it. And he hates TV, doesn't he? He really, really does. Um, I, I really enjoyed um, the, the scholarship of uh, Frederick White, um, he is a professor at the University of Utah, and um, I read a few of his articles. I believe he is working on a book, a scholarly um, overview of Balabanov's work, but there is a quote that kind of directly speaks to it. Um, so he says that um, Cargo 200 was meant to interrupt an increasing nostalgia for a Soviet past and to question the re-emergence of authoritarianism in post-Soviet Russia, most of it conveyed through Kremlin-controlled television channels. Um, and this idea of you know, propaganda and the controlled image and the screen and also voyeurism and pornography and snuff um, and alternative um, realities, you know, alternative televised realities, it really, really permeates Balabano's work. And, you know, the, um, the the police captain's mother, who is very much complicit in the crime, yeah, you know? Yeah, I was going to um, She's kind of, in many ways, see, uh, shown as someone who is the result of this, of the influence, you know, of, of the TV screen. You know, she is someone who has been completely, you know, her individuality, her critical faculties have been dissolved by A, alcohol, and B... Soviet television propaganda. Well, and nowadays, depending on which country you're in, like people's uh, sensibilities are rotted away by social media. 
uh, depending on which social media platform you use, particularly uh, Facebook, them algorithms doing a number on uh, certain people. But I don't want to make this too political. But you know, no, no, if it was or a too meta. Film, that's what would happen? Yeah. Or too meta? Um, I've thought about this, in fact, because Balabanov. He died in 2013. He died on the 18th of May, 2013. Um, it was, it was. I don't know. It really affected me, and and I was not the only one. You know, people really took his death personally. He really wasn't just a household name, but he really felt like, you know, like someone who made a huge impact. Um, and this was, you know, this was before the revolution. You know, he didn't he didn't witness the revolution in Ukraine. He didn't witness the annexation of, of the Crimea um, by Russia in uh, March of 2014. Um, he didn't, you know, see the, the war in the east of the country. Um, a lot, you know, and, and, you know, trolling and fake news and, and, and deep fakes and, and all of this. You know, there's this rapid um, evolution of alternative realities as seen through the screen. In, in a way, he didn't witness all this, but in, in many ways he presaged it. Through his through through his observation of of um, of industrial society and you know modernist technology, um, uh, such as you know he he looks at the um, at phonography you know the recording of sound um, he looks at photography the recording of the still image and of course cinematography you know recording of the moving image and it's almost you know um, once you divorce the sound and the image from the human being, you create this, this reality, you know, this kind of mechanical reality that has a life of its own. And that can, um, in, in many ways, you know, corrupt and harm and co-opt, um, and, 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 uh, in some way alter, uh, re- real people. And this kind of real, um, so actually, if I may, just another Frederick White quote that the guy's amazing. So, he, he claims that Balabanov articulated a position that the technology of modernity refracted a near reality, one that alienated people from the sacred. You know, so this idea of, of, of people falling further and further and further away from God, I think the intuition was very much there in his earlier work, but it became a very conscious um, I think a conscious um, theme in his in his later work and Cargo 200 shows you the reality of a godless society where the authorities are no longer strong enough to curtail you know this bestial even demonic sensibility of people who have too much freedom and um and, and, and Dostoevsky, for similar reasons, you know, he wrote about criminals, he wrote about um, prostitutes, because in many ways, <clears throat> these are the people who are, are at the kind of, these are the people who are testing the limits of human freedom the most, you know, they're on the margins, either of, um, of the law or of the moral law, you know, they're very much at the fringes. And, and that is where this, this, um, this uh, exploration just becomes starker. Mm. And it's uh, Dostoevsky that I uh, wanted to go into. So there's the last thing I kind of wanted to touch on for the film before we uh, we wrapped up. Um, so there's this uh, quote, 
I don't know if it's directly taken from Dostoevsky. Um, it's taken from the book that you mentioned earlier that I can't get the name of right. <laughs> um, but it's actually quoted sort of directly in the film as well. So it's the idea of if there is no God, then everything is allowed essentially and that's what uh, alexi says in the film so it's this idea that once you take god out of the equation there is no morality and as a western audience when we watch films we often uh, and i'm guilty of this as well um i've talked about films on this channel where like i've you know gone well, why did this happen why did this person do this and we look for motivation in characters as to why they carry out the acts they do and in this film, you know, the policeman, we don't know why he does what he does. He just does it. And at the end of the film, when, you know, um, Tonya shoots him dead, she doesn't free Angelica from her, her, you know, she's chained to this bed with these two dead bodies next to her. Like, she doesn't rescue her. She doesn't free her from her shackles, so to speak. And... That's by design, I think. That's the the whole point of the film. It's not necessarily what happens in the film that is the point of the film. Is The film has a point, and the actions in the film kind of uh, support the that um, argument. Well, earlier, earlier in the film, um, Donya was in fact trying to protect Angelica... Yes. From from being raped by her own common-law husband. What she didn't realise is she failed to protect her from an even, you know, worse fate, maybe in some ways. Yeah. Um, and, and, and what she says, she, she reprimands Angelica when she kind of keeps insisting that, oh, I have to go home, I have to go home. Like, she's in the middle of nowhere with a date who is her best friend's boyfriend, who is passed out drunk from, like, hmm. pure, you know, undiluted uh, alcohol. Vodka. A vodka. Like, he's under the bench, you know, just knocked out drunk. Um, and, and Angelica, you know, and, and so Tonya says, can you drive? As in, like, can you take his car and get out of here yourself? And she's like, no, I can't, but I have to get home. And the, And she's like look, you should have thought about this, you know, before you got in, into it. You know, she basically, basically she reprimands her saying, you know, like, don't whine. This <laughs> is the direct consequence of your thoughtless actions. Now I'm going to tell you what to do. Hopefully this will protect you, you know. So the fact that she doesn't unshackle Angelica, I think at that point... It's been interpreted to mean that, like, Angelica is now beyond help, you know? Like, this has damaged her so much that it doesn't even matter whether she gets out of there or not. She's just, you know, she's done for. Other people have, um, you know, um, thought this to mean a very literal kind of visual metaphor. You've made your bed now, lay in it. Uh, literally shackled to it next to two decomposing corpses and the flies oh my god the flies we have not <laughs> mentioned the flies but there are many flies and um i read um an interview with agnia kuznetsova where you know she said two interesting things one thing was that one of the most difficult things for her in in this film was to have to deal with the flies because they were real and they were all over her 
and they were like just dying all the time so she was just like laying in this like bed of dead flies which was quite unpleasant you gotta love the russians they're method acting like you know fuck health and safety it's like no this is what's going to happen glad to see that hasn't changed over the years well there was no disclaimer that said that no animals were you know no flies Uh, were were harmed in, in the making of this film but the other thing which was in many ways for me like very reassuring um was that she said that balabanov was so kind to her and just so like he just gave her all the time that she needed to get in character to just have some quiet time and that like everyone on set was just so considerate you know and um and i thought that was wonderful because it, you know there are obviously um examples of very taxing sex scenes in 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 film history and i mean last tango in paris comes to mind as like the ultimate like how not to do it like apparently how like maria schneider didn't even know that the margarine scene was happening before it did you know and and, and all of that and then and then most recently blue is the warmest color you know you had um um the actors complaining that that they had just like a very horrible time they were treated very badly they were made to do things that they didn't want to do and then you know with this you know with her just affirming that um Alexey Balabanov was empathetic he was just a good human being he was yes a talented director yes he demanded talent and and quality from his actors but he wasn't going nuts on top of all the madness that's like in the film you know i thought that was uh, an important um an important thing to consider actually uh and last thing i wanted to say this might just be me um i thought travel was quite an interesting kind of visual metaphor in this film um because you've got the professor in his car you've got the policeman on his sort of um i don't know what to call it like his his motorbike I guess, for lack of a better term. You've got trains. So he lives right by a train station and you see trains moving past quite a lot. Um, Valera, you obviously have the car that he's in as well. Um, I don't know if there's anything to that, but I thought it was quite interesting. Um, Travel is... So um, in Balabanov's universe, um, he is very much concerned with modernist capital m technology um and and one of the types of technology is transport so the train and the tram and you know in some of his films the airplane um they form you know they they are um a symbol of modernization industrialization and with it of moral decline and another kind of family of modernist technology is the recording of the sound, of sound and the and image and that's your phonography photography and cinematography so i actually made um because i pretty much i think i pretty much rewatched the entire <laughs> balabano filmography in anticipation of this and and this is you know let me just say this is something that i do do once every few years <laughs> um and a lot of these films are just kind of like family staples like in our family you know these films like we we love them we rewatch them we quote them it's it's totally normal i assure you so is cargo 200 a family staple in your house then? then uh 
well, actually, <laughs> I remember when it came out. I would have been 17 and I was visiting, um, so I was living in the UK at the time, visiting uh, my family in Kiev. I think it would have been over the holidays and my stepdad says to me, oh yeah, Balabanov just released a new film. It's called Cargo 200. You have to watch it. <laughs> I just remember watching it and being like, oh, no, he said something like, watch <laughs> it. It's crazy. We will discuss, you know, and I watched it. I was just like, oh my God, what have I just seen? And um, um, Brother and Brother 2, definitely staples. Um, Dead Man's Bluff, Shmurki, that's like a film that for for better or for worse that we love in our family. It's, um, it's kind of like a Balabanov's take on Guy Ritchie. You know, Guy Ritchie comes to post-Soviet Russia. It's 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 strange. Right. Uh, it's very... We've seen it, haven't we? Yes, we have. We have. It's. I mean, what's your take on it? You got more out of it than me, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. Well, I mean... Uh, we kind of talked about how Balabanov was, was making, you know, films for his own <laughs> rather than decadent West. So I'm sorry if that didn't cross over. But uh, yeah, um, what would you say were your top three Balabanov films from the ones that you've seen? This, brother. <laughs> Does the only thing you need to know. Probably <laughs> mm, of Freaks and Men. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a beautiful picture, if nothing else, and um, it's got that kind of retro, um, just timelessness, you know, it's just like pure art. Um, with Cargo 200, you know, I first saw it as a teenager, um, I saw it in my early 20s, I saw it in my mid-20s, and I haven't seen it for years and years and years until we watched it just now, um, and my view like you know my perception of it has really changed i have found it increasingly more difficult to watch in some ways um but in other ways um i have this time round discovered a lot more humanity in it than i ever realized that there was but and this is the interesting question so how bad is it so uh i'll go first in that regard so i would say it's bad not worse than that though so if you look at what happens on paper yes it's pretty horrific and in reviews it's been called things like uh, cruel and pressing and sort of horrible but you guys need to watch some of the shit that I have to watch for this show because, yeah, on paper, yes, certain things that happen in it are very kind of, you know, degrading and sort of horrific uh, to Angelica. But like I mentioned earlier, what happens isn't really graphic, which does take it down a notch. Also, um, Balabanov's awesome use of music means that basically when something like really horrible happens he immediately plays this really happy kind of uh, soviet era pop song <laughs> which is uh sort of immediately kind of sort of takes any kind of like nihilistic streak out of it 
I would say. Well, surely, surely amplifies the effect because you get the schizophrenic, you know, counterposition between the the jolly pop music. Oh, actually, that that was... It's kind of what Wes Craven tried to do in Last House on the Left, but he failed miserably. (laughs) What what song did he um did he play? Well, he didn't use music. What he tried to do is you'd have these horrible scenes of like these two young girls being violated and tortured and raped, but at the same time you had these policemen who were inept, and so he had these like comic relief scenes where like so one of them, for example, like their car breaks down, they try and hitchhike on this like mad woman driving like a chicken truck. <laughs> so they're trying to sort of sit on the back of this truck with all these chickens in it and yeah just um it, it just didn't work let's put it that way so yeah um in the same way that didn't work i found that this did work um so i think that was the secret you just got to play like jaunty sort of uh soviet pop music um, one of the most vocal critics of the film was Yuri Lazar, who was, uh, well, I mean, he's still alive, I believe. Um, he was a, um, a, a Soviet pop legend, and his song, Plot, uh, is played when the captain is abducting Angelica and kind of taking her on a motorcycle ride through the industrial wasteland of this provincial town that this is set in. Yeah, um... Did did uh, I think I mentioned to you that I watched the entire um, like public like public debate um, post screening of Cargo Two Hundred? So this was in two thousand and eight, and this was on um, Channel One. This was like the the, Rus- the like the, the number one channel in Russia, and and they had a lot of like public intellectuals, filmmakers, politicians, like a lot of famous people, um, you know, come and do this like. To, to the, to the screening of Cargo 200 and then they had this like televised debate and like some people they were staunch kind of defenders of the film they were like this is pure art this is the country that that you know we finally can put behind us we can put this nostalgia behind us you know and then like some people were just absolutely enraged and one of the most enraged was this like pop star whose song Balabanov probably with permission used um, but it was, you know, he, he was every bit as comical as you would expect for someone who was that popular in the Soviet Union and therefore that complicit with the Soviet regime. All that aside, though, um, would you say it's... Uh, so in terms of a bad date movie, would you say it's good, not that bad, bad, very bad, or the worst? It's not the worst, but I would say it's very bad. Okay, uh, why would you say that? Uh, just the the crippling weight of it, the crippling Dostoevskian existential anguish of it. Um, not even so much for the horrific scenes. Of course, you know they they add to that um, dramatic tension, but it takes you on a. It really takes you on a journey into the heart of darkness, you know, and that's not, not, it's kind of a film like having seen it, you just want to be quiet for a while. (laughs) And uh, it's on that note that uh, we go to kind of the last section of the show, which is reviews from the outer rim, where uh, myself and Miro are going to give you guys um, some of the um, opinions out there on Letterboxd, which we are both on. 
if you want to follow us, please do. Um, so I have a review here from a guy called Misha, and he kind of uh, backs what Miro has just said, essentially, which says, Jesus Christ, one of the most genuinely fucked up films I've seen in a while. It exposes the horrors of humanity and of the Soviet Union in the 80s in a sickening, unflinching fashion, not for one for the faint of heart. One theme in the film is a condemnation of the naive and blind Russian masses which would drown themselves in alcohol and media, clinging to blind idealism and nationalism while ignoring the true horrors that are happening around them. I think this is a simple but profound statement, one that rang true for my parents' generation in the Soviet Union, and one that still rings true today to a certain extent. While one part of me hates the nihilistic, overly dark attitude of this film, another part of me appreciates the brutal honesty and true depiction of real-life horror and abuse of power it depicts. Genuinely sickening movie, and I don't know if I would ever watch again, but I will remember it for a while. Proceed with caution. Oh, wow. Okay, well, <laughs> the one that I chose, the first one, by Jeff! Exclamation point, is a little bit shorter than that. Um... Jeff exclamation point um, gave this. Is that his full name? Jeff exclamation point. I guess. Um, so Jeff exclamation point or Mark actually. I've gone all American. Um, he or she gave it one and a half stars and said, "Maybe the art of film was a mistake." Wow. Which, <laughs> I can't help wondering if this is a direct um, reply to Vladimir Lenin's assertion that of all the arts, cinema is the most important to us. It may be, but it certainly speaks to Balabanov's criticism of the um, of, of cinematography, you know, as a, essentially leading to moral decline um, by and large. Well, you certainly don't have enough pithy one-sentence reviews on Letterboxd, so there we go. Um, so my uh, other review I wanted to, to highlight is uh, by someone called Michael, um, who gave it four stars out of five. He says, I'm being half facetious when I say that this should be called the Russian Chainsaw Massacre. Cargo 200 is famous as a cold shower for nostalgia for the late Soviet era, as it shows a society that lost its moral moorings and lets anything happen. On the other hand, American viewers might feel a horror movie vibe to this as clueless middle-class people step off the path and run into the rage of the underclass, those left behind by Soviet society. Some bright scholar could probably compare Cargo 200 with Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Deliverance, a very well-made film, although not recommended for those easily offended. Now, I take slight exception to that. I can kind of see where people get the idea that, okay, this is, you know, people that are going off into sort of the middle of nowhere. They're getting, you know, going where they're not meant to, you know, with, you know, backwards hick locals or whatever. But I think that's kind of missing the point of the film in some way because that does happen. But, you know, the person who kind of causes you know, all the, the kind of misery that happens in the film is not like that. He's in a position of authority. So he is, in effect, and I can't believe I'm saying this, if you, like, take the sheriff, so the Ali Ermi character from the really shit Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake, he would kind of be that kind of character. So there aren't really any kind of, like, you know, backwards yokels. Um yeah, so I kind of see why people would say that, but I don't personally agree. Uh, yeah, so 
that's my opinion on that. Well, you know, the, the, another Suarez who gave this film four stars, he goes, Russian Chainsaw Massacre may have to cry in the shower after it. This movie is gulag. Uh, it's, it's, it's very concise. It's very perceptive. Um, yeah, you're it, going for all the concise reviews today. In fact, one of the... Oh, I love it. Um, uh, in in um, in one you know one of the most um, one of the most kind of scathing criticisms of the film during this this public screening was uh, a, another um, like a, a Soviet I think like film editor or something who who said that if Cargo two hundred I mean Balabanov was at this as was his producer and most of his crew you know. And they were just keeping shtum. They didn't reply to most of these, you know. They were just like super cool, cool as cucumbers. And a kind of like intertextual little fun moment for me was when this this, this guy who was like in his 60s at least, you know, he says, if this film had happened, you know, it was set in the US, then we would just brush it off as like a slasher or a picture like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre or Hostel. But, you know, you setting, you choosing to set this in Soviet Russia is like offensive. And and at no point did Balabanov go, well, actually, you know, <laughs> this is a reimagining of William Faulkner's um, Sanctuary, which is set in the American South, you know. So it's so kind of, it brings you back. It brings you forward. It brings you back again. You know, it's, it's, it's very, um, it really does rattle some cages. And and that's that really attests to the lasting impact and power and significance of Balabanov, even though the world that brought him into being as a director and the world that he depicts in his films kind of exists in a sort of parallel reality now. So on the whole, a very good film. Um, I enjoyed it very much. I don't know if I meant to enjoy it <laughs> because, yeah, some pretty horrible stuff happens in it. But no, I really enjoyed it. Um, I was uh, It kept my intention all the way through. I thought the acting was really good. I thought it was really well shot and very well directed. And yeah, um, I thought the uh, character development was was ace. It was top notch. It's sort of one of the better films I think I've talked about on the show. Um, I would watch it again. I know a lot of people say that they they can't, but one of my favourite films of all time is Requiem for a Dream. So watching <laughs> sort of fucked up stuff really isn't sort of something that puts me off. And uh, yeah. If you want to own this film on uh, DVD or Blu-ray, then you are shit out of luck because I could not find anywhere online um, where you could buy this film for yourself. But if you did want to watch it, if you hadn't seen it before, you can watch it for free on YouTube with English subtitles. There we go. So there you go, exactly. So yeah, if you uh, want to check it out for yourself, that is the best way to do that. Um, so I want to thank uh, Miroslava Hartman very, very much for joining me on the show again. Thank you so much for having me again. It really is a privilege to be able to talk about Balabanov with a fellow movie buff. Uh, the privilege is all mine, believe me. And uh, I want to thank you all very much for listening to the show. I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, I will see you on the very, very next show for more of the worst eight movies ever. Thank you for listening. 
If you want to follow me on social media, you can at Worst Date Movies Ever. And don't forget to click subscribe wherever you're listening to this right now to never miss another episode of Worst Date Movies Ever. Ever.